the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Shortly, I'll be talking to OnPost Chief Executive Dave McRedmond. He'll be telling me about a row the company is having with the UK Post Office, about a failure to implement post-Brexit custom rules. Later, I'll be talking to two cafe and restaurant owners on Ashton Key in Dublin about the impact antisocial behaviour and open drug dealing in the area is having on their businesses. But first to the postal row. Earlier this week, OnPost Chief Executive Dave McRedmond had a letter published in the Financial Times in London, outlining a row with the UK Post Office that has impacted on the delivery of packages from some British retailers to Irish households. This is due, he says, to a failure to implement new post-Brexit custom rules. So I began by asking David to outline the backdrop to the dispute. The issue is really an issue between Irish customs or EU customs and the UK. On post is just in the middle of it. The issue is that EU customs introduced new rules called Customs 2020. And that was a program, I believe, designed to uh, reduce trade and cheap items coming in from uh, China in particular. And it required three elements, really. First of all, electronic data. Secondly, tariffs to be paid. And thirdly, a list of restricted items. Then, of course, what happens is Brexit. And the Britain, who I actually I think some British civil servants in the EU were some of the people who helped create the rules. Britain finds itself outside of the EU and suddenly is subject to the same rules of a third country. So the issue is really about Britain sending goods into the EU. The customs rules have been implemented in Ireland first. That's a decision of the, presumably of the Irish government or of the EU, I don't know who, but the rules have been implemented here first in the EU and are mandatory across the whole of the EU from January 1st next. So that's the environment that's happening. Now, to do that, the UK needs any goods that come from Britain need to meet these requirements. They need to have the electronic codes. They need to make sure the tariffs can be paid and they need not to be a restricted item. Now, that's fine with the 85% of parcels we take in from the UK, which are our contract parcels with people like Amazon, Boohoo.com, MarksandSpencers.com, any of the big e-tailers, we know they're sending parcels to us. So we worked with them to put the systems in place so that their systems speak to our systems and critically speak to Irish customs. Those goods, when you buy something, say from boohoo.com, they will charge you the VAT when you buy it. Um, the goods will come into Dublin. Uh, they'll be barcoded. Um, customs will recognise good and that VAT has been paid, we recognise it and go straight out for delivery. That's all fine. And that's how the system should work. The real problem is when you don't know somebody sending something. And that's why the post office exists. It's why the postal service exists. The whole purpose of postal is to allow people to trade without having to notify the receiver. So if you want to send something to your aunt in Australia, you'll go into a post office here, 
we will uh, put on the right codes and and uh, and the right postage, etc., and we'll send it to Australia. That's how the post office works. The problem we have is that in the UK, the UK post office will not put the systems in place to meet the EU customs requirements. Now, where this is particularly difficult is with SMEs. SMEs, small businesses, typically use post offices to send uh, parcels to their customers around the world. We call it the Norfolk Jam problem. So the Norfolk Jam company has a few people in Ireland who like to get their jams. They'll go into the post office in Norfolk, they'll post them. Now, if they arrive and they don't have the right codes on them, we have to send them back. Or if they arrive and they have the right codes, we have to collect the VAT from the receiver. The receiver might decide they want to pay it. They might decide, actually, now I didn't realize there was VAT due. I don't want to pay it. If they don't want to pay it, we have to send it back. And that's where the problem is. And that problem can be as many as up to 5,000 parcels a day. Um, more typically, it's about 1,500 parcels a day that we might send back. Now, you've got to remember, we take in vast number of parcels from Britain every day. So something like 16 million parcels we'd take in, uh, maybe up to 20 million parcels in a year. Six million of those would typically come through the post, um, the post being the Royal Mail, and then of those, maybe four million came across post office counters. So that's that's what the issue is. Um, it's a classic trading issue. It's a bit of a trade war issue, but it's a classic trading issue, which is how do you facilitate trade? And all we want to do is to get the UK post office to put the system in place, and then the problem is solved. Um, but we don't own the post office in the UK. The Royal Mail interestingly, doesn't own the post office. It's not like in Ireland, where on post and the post office are the one company. In the UK, Royal Mail is a public company, a PLC with shareholders, uh, with public equity shareholders. And uh, the post office is owned by the government. And the post office and Royal Mail don't see eye to eye on anything. Yeah. And from just judging by a statement we received from the post office, they seem to be blaming it on the Royal Mail. Um, but that aside, I presume you've been in touch with the post office uh, on this. What are they telling you? Yeah, we've been in touch with them. But uh, I mean, I, I spoke to them like uh, a few times a year ago. Now, I haven't spoken to them since. We've teams that keep trying to deal with them. They just say it's a matter but for Royal Mail to solve with the post office. So, and we don't have any contractual relationship with the post office. You know, we've no, we don't really, we can't, we can't sue them. We've no, we've no relationship there. And um, the only relationship is with Royal Mail. And it's up to Royal Mail to work with the post office. And now we do have rights with Royal Mail to say that they shouldn't send items that have incorrect data. But, you know, between ourselves and Royal Mail, what we try to do is we use various systems. And there are systems you can use that can read a label on, you know, like an old-fashioned customs label that says you've sent a package of bubblegum and it's written on a code. We can, a machine can read that, try and find a code. We create a code and then it goes through. But that's pretty messy and clunky. And a lot of those aren't right. 
They're, and they're the ones that Irish customs are saying you've got to send them back. So, um, so basically the post office are saying, look, we don't deal with you on post, nothing to do with us. Um, they also claim that they, they're meeting WTO rules, World Trade Organization rules, you know, um, and that's fine. But that's not the case. I mean, anywhere in the world has different kind of customs rules. The US, for example, changed their rules very significantly last year where they introduced an electronic code. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. Royal Mail are very frustrated. Uh, so I'm trying to apply whatever pressure I can. I've spoken to the British government. Uh, through the, I've spoken to the embassy here in Ireland. Uh, I got a good hearing from the ambassador. He was well informed on the issue. But nothing seems to happen. Nothing seems to change. David, you mentioned that the UK post office would have to invest in new technology. Have you any idea how much that investment would be? No, although we've done, I mean, we've put the systems in place because we actually have to have the systems for sending goods out um, from uh, from Ireland. And we've invested in systems and, you know, that can cost uh, multiple of millions, but it's not 100 million. You know, it's it's more in the region of, it, it depends because ours is an upgrade and we've good systems. We probably have better systems than they have in the UK post office. Ours might cost in the region of, you know, five to 10 million. I don't know. And then the UK, much bigger. I don't know. Is it 100 million? Is it? I, I don't know what the amount is. But to be honest, Karen, that's not my job. You know, the reality is, what is the point of a post office if you can't post things and expect them to get to the other end? I mean, the bit that drives me absolutely mad is, and the reason why I wrote the letter to the Financial Times is, this is not a pro or anti-Brexit thing. My point of my letter to the Financial Times was I said, look, there had been an article in the Financial Times about saying how Britain could get back into the single market. And I'm saying, yeah, look, but that's pretty controversial. How about you just do things that would allow you to trade with your new status as a third country? And you can. Britain can trade with the EU. You can send goods. We take in goods all the time from the e-commerce, the big e-commerce retailers. So I don't understand why the British government wouldn't want its post office to be able to help SMEs in Britain to trade with the EU. By the way, what kind of charges are, are people being hit with when, you know, a parcel lands here without the proper codes and, and so on, and maybe you try and deliver it to them and get, and get the customs uh, paid? What, what kind of numbers are we talking about? Three euros fifty. It's a very. It's by far the smallest charge, and we're probably going to have to change it because it doesn't remotely cover our costs. You take an item, you've got to move it, you've got to put it in a discreet place, you've got to call up the customer, you've then got to try and collect the money, you then get the money, you got to reconcile it back to that, and then you put the parcel out for delivery. You know, three euros fifty doesn't cover it, and but that's what they're charged at the moment. Um, I think the reality is from some point, and I've certainly set the target in Unpust, that I would like us from the end of, of 2023 to only deal with what are called duty paid parcels. So duty paid is the description I used earlier for Boohoo.com or for, for Amazon, where you pay the duty. You see it when you order online, you pay your VAT. And what happens is there's then a settlement between Amazon and Unpost 
and the Irish customs. And that's how it works. And that's a very simple and straightforward system. That's what we've put in place. That's where we want to get to. So now we should be able to get there because, so there's two elements. One element is to get the post office to put in place uh, this electronic coding, and we hope they will do so. But the other is that they put in place a duty paid model. So the code just tells you what is in the parcel and that allows customs to accept it. Um, but uh, we don't want to be dealing with charges anymore. There's a lot of scams and frauds and things going on. And it's just much better that a point of order. And this, remember, is just for commercial parcels. If you're buying something from the Norfolk Jam Company, they ought to be able to have a pretty simple system to charge the VAT and to make that settlement. And we're working very hard on that. Now, as it happens at the moment, Royal Mail certainly have the coding system. And I'd say to any SME um, in the UK or any customer in Ireland ordering from an SME in the UK, tell them to use the click and post in the in the Royal Mail. At least it will have the right code and it will get in. We'll still have to collect um, the tariff, but um, at least that way it gets into Ireland. Yeah. What kind of disruption has Brexit caused to uh, post between Ireland and Britain, David? So it's been hugely disruptive. Uh, we've been at the forefront of this. We deal with it every day. Um, it's uh, e-commerce, as I say, we've sorted it with the big e-commerce companies. You know, this was introduced by Irish Customs 18 months ago, and we're there. I mean, it works with 85% of the trade, which is the big e-tailers. With the postal channel, it is disastrous. And uh, parcels through the post have dropped by about 52% um, in one year. Now, that is equivalent. That, that will cost us about 25 million in the postage we'd have got paid to deliver it in Ireland. Um, value of goods, and I was asked this this morning more in Ireland, it's difficult to calculate. We don't know the value of all the items, but we would calculate that there's somewhere around 150 to 200 million uh, euros of items uh, uh, value uh, that's lost to the UK. That's not lost to us, but lost to UK SMEs. And if you then multiply that across Europe, it will be a disaster for them. Now, for Impulse, that 25 million, we make up some, you know, some trade has switched to within the EU. And I've, you know, I'm sure that's the intent of the customs legislation is it's designed to, to promote the single market. So, you know, people are ordering more from EU sites. Um, I think the, I think one of the sad things is it means people order more from the big e-tailers because they know they're reliable. Nothing against big e-tailers says they're great. But, you know, you'd like to think that small e-tailers don't lose all their margin by having to wholesale into big e-tailers. Um, you'd like to think they could find a way. Um, for Impost, the other costs are just simply the costs of implementing um, uh, all of these systems and controls and everything. And that's cost us in the region, I estimate, of about 20 million euros. Now, we've got a claim in on an EU Brexit fund of 10 million euros to pay for some of the systems. And so we have that and we will be making another claim uh, shortly. And finally, David, we're coming up to Christmas. So uh, how, ma how many parcels are you going to be um, and Christmas cards and whatnot are you going to be delivering over the Christmas period? And how has that changed, let's say, from five years ago? Five years ago, we'd have delivered, uh, I would reckon, maybe 
between 50 to 100,000 a week. We're now delivering probably around one and a half million a week. So there's a massive, massive change. In the last week, we might deliver two million. Um, you know, the volumes are massive in terms of what we're delivering. Uh, and we are delivering 99% of them. Actually, technically, we're delivering 96%. What we're talking about is the 4% that we can't get through customs. But, you know, that 4%, it sounds a small amount, but it's a massive amount, each parcel to each customer who isn't getting their item. That's why we're so keen to resolve this and fix it. That's what we're really trying to do. So that's the real problem for us. I think in terms of our business, our, you know, we're doing really strong this Christmas, despite the uh, economic headwinds. E-commerce is doing extremely well, uh, doing better than we expected. And so, you know, it will be a good Christmas for us, but it won't be a good Christmas if somebody doesn't get their parcel. No, indeed. And we can't even blame Santa on this one. So, <laughs> David McGrimmon, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Karen. I'm going to take a short break now when I return. I'll be talking to two cafe and restaurant owners on Dublin's Ashton Quay about the impact antisocial behaviour and open drug dealing in the area is having on their businesses. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Antisocial behaviour and open drug dealing has become more of a feature of Dublin's inner city over the past couple of years. Stephen Kennedy of the Copper and Straw Cafe on Ashton Key in Dublin and his neighbour Sean Cuchenzi of the Happy Endings Restaurant recently told of the impact of this on their businesses to Irish Times columnist Una Mullally, who wrote an excellent article capturing the daily difficulties they face. Earlier this week, I spoke with Stephen and Sean and I began by asking Stephen to explain the history of Copper and Straw and how it came to trade on Ashton Key. So I opened the business uh, a little over four years ago and the shop in Bray, uh, we have three shops at the moment. We've got one in Bray, which opened four years ago. The one on Aaron Key, I opened in June 2021, so smack bang in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, but thankfully, that one is going pretty well right now after a slow start. And then I opened in Aston Key just under three months ago. My own background, I worked in higher education for years. Um, so this was a complete career change for me. I was just always very passionate about coffee. I really enjoyed coffee shops and being in cafes and just that whole social space um, and always had an idea or a vision of what I'd like to do myself. So a little over four years ago, I just I just took the plunge and decided to open in Bray. I'd been working, I'd quit my job in Maynooth University three years before that and had just been working in coffee shops all over Dublin just trying to get the the skills and the experience and, and to understand the nuts and bolts of the business, really. And then I found a unit on the main street in Bray, um, a shabby little rundown unit in Bray, and I just fell in love with it. I felt it had huge potential. And it went very well. And really building on that, uh, two years later, I opened in Aaron Key. And then, as I mentioned, uh, three months ago, opened in Aston Key. 
And Aston Key was an interesting one for me because of all three of the shops, you know, Aston Key was the one that I was least worried about because I just felt, my goodness, you know, here we go, a location smack bang in the centre of the city, 100 metres from O'Connell Bridge, 200 metres from the GPO, nestled in between Grafton Street and Henry Street, two of the busiest shopping streets in the city. And I just really felt that this was a no-brainer. You know, I understood, of course, that there are some issues in relation to antisocial activity in the city centre. I already have a city centre location and we've had to deal with some issues and we've been able to manage them pretty effectively and pretty well. But uh, actually, as it turns out, Aston Key is turning into the troublesome third child. So, you know, we've a lot of work to do just to really get the shop established and um, hopefully uh, through conversations like this, just to try and get some of the issues around antisocial behaviour addressed. Stephen, just to geolocate it for people in their heads, if you like, it's beside O'Connell Bridge, it's on the south side of the Liffey, and Aston Quay is where, for people of a certain age, I remember the old Virgin Megastore, the use it office uh, used to be along there. That's the kind of stretch we're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. My shop is based in the old Virgin Megastore building, so I have one of the units on the ground floor. So there's a large super value. I'm on one side and then Sean and Happy Endings are on the other side. So literally just 100 metres from O'Connell Bridge. Now, Stephen, when did you first have an inkling that there might be an issue with the location? Well, I was aware, you know, I, I did a certain amount of due diligence and research into the area. So I was aware that there are issues in the city centre in relation to drug dealing and antisocial behaviour. But the, I suppose, the scale and the seriousness of it really only became apparent when I started fitting out the unit. So the fit out itself took a little over two months, closer to three months, actually. And I was there a lot of the time with the various subcontractors. And I just started noticing, you know, very frequently and continuously throughout the day that there would be groups of individuals, gangs of individuals dealing drugs on the corner outside the street. A lot of the subcontractors would say to me, my goodness, you know, like I, I saw a drug deal today or, you know, there were people smoking crack pipes, you know, close to the shop or outside the shop. And really, it was at that stage that I won't say panic set in, but I kind of really started thinking that we're dealing with something that perhaps I hadn't quite anticipated. So at that stage, I contacted uh, Pier Street Guard Station. I met with an individual from the Crime Prevention Unit. I met with uh, some of the representatives from Community Policing and just had a discussion with them about the location and really trying to get an insight into, you know, what was going on and, you know, the scale of it. And they were just very honest with me, you know, they didn't dress it up and I did appreciate that. But they said, look, you know, this is a very challenging location. This is as bad as we've seen it in years. This is a known area for drug dealing and you will absolutely have your hands full in this location. And Stephen, at that point, did you consider pulling out of the lease or would that have been a possibility for you? Well, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Because, you know, <laughs> once you sign a lease, you sign a lease. And, uh, you know, I, I'm there for, for, for the next eight years, so, so I have to make this work. And, um, you know, I know when I sat down with Una Mullally from the Irish Times and we were having a discussion around the issues that I, that I was experiencing, I was explaining to Una, as I've explained to almost everybody that I've spoken to since, you know, this is a small business. I quit my job at Maynooth University to, to get this business going. 
I sold my apartment and put everything into this business. So, you know, like I, I've put everything that I have into it. So it's really important for me and for the people who are working with me that we make a go of this and that we have every opportunity to try to get this off the ground because the stakes are so incredibly high. So no, like there wasn't an opportunity to pull out. But I even think if there was, like, wouldn't that just be such a sad, sad thing if I took the decision that actually I cannot trade in the centre, in the absolute centre of our beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous city because it's just taken over with, I don't want to say taken over, but there's there's such a, a an issue with open drug dealing and antisocial behaviour that's associated with that, that actually it's a bad idea to open a business in that area. You know, I prefer to open, to do everything that I can, you know, to fight as hard as I can to try and make a go of it because we deserve to be able to trade in the centre of our city. And, you know, the people who are living and working nearby deserve to have a place that they can go to sit down and have a coffee. Tourists who visit the city deserve to have businesses that they can go to where they can socialise and experience the culture and the life and the pulse of the city. You know, like like we have to be able to do that. And you told Una, I know in the article that in your fourth week, uh, the cafe was robbed at knife point. Mm. I'm just wondering what impact all of this antisocial behaviour going on around you and, and, you know, and something like that happening. I mean, it must have been very frightening for your staff members. What impact that has had on trade? The impact uh, on staff members, you're absolutely right, was just horrific. Like this was, you know, even with everything that was going on, I did not expect this. Uh, and certainly the guards advised that, you know, robberies of businesses, uh, you know, are, are unusual. So when that happened, it was just, you know, it was just such a shocking, horrific incident. And I think that's really what kind of prompted me to reach out to Una and to a number of the local TDs and councillors and things like that, because I just felt, you know, this, this, this just isn't right. This can't be allowed to continue. And, you know, like we've only just opened an Aston Key. I'm trading there less than three months. So it's very difficult to understand at this stage kind of the impact that an event like that is going to have on our business. All I know right now is that the scale and the level of antisocial activity that's happening outside my window is impacting on getting the business off the ground. It absolutely is. Like some of the things that we've seen have just been you know, so concerning and so worrying. And you, you just can't expect a tourist to push past the drug dealer to get into a coffee shop. And certainly if a street or an area just becomes associated with that type of activity, you know, people will stay away. They'll just move on to a different part of the city where they consider it safer and nicer and more pleasant to visit. So I can't say that the robbery in itself has had a very negative impact uh, on our trade. But what I can say with absolute certainty is that the persistence of the the drug dealing and the antisocial behaviour that we witness literally all day, every day, is having a very profound impact on my business. And I would expect other businesses in the area. And certainly a few people have reached out to me since the article who live in Temple Bar. And, you know, they're just so frustrated and so upset and so concerned about their local area and, you know, they're experiencing the exact same challenges and difficulties that we are. 
And that's awful too. You know, this is literally in people's in people's homes. Uh, Sean Crescenzi, you're the owner of Happy Endings, which is the neighbour of Copper and Straw on Aston Quay. It's a restaurant. You opened this in April of last year. What's been your experience of the area? This isn't really like a new issue. My family opened their first place on the Keys back in 2001, which was the first Bar Italia with uh, my father's partner, uh, business partner, down in front of uh, Wood Quay, down by Smock Alley, which, you know, has always had problems down there. And, you know, had another place inside Temple Bar and stuff. And, you know, I grew up in town. It, it's not like it's a new issue. There's always been that issue. What's changed lately is obviously post-COVID or during COVID, the weakest in society were really hit the hardest, let's be honest. And, um, you know, having really nowhere else geographically to go, it all kind of ended up festering around that area. And, you know, it just became kind of a boiling point issue. You know, and that's that's where I think it really kind of, uh, it's kind of breeding from. But, you know, just to add there what uh, Copper and Straw did, like their fit out is gorgeous, by the way, and did a great job on it. And, you know, Temple Bar, let's be honest, was never that great. Bar for tourists, not many, you know, not many Dubliners would hang around around there traditionally. Over the last 10 years, you've seen great improvements, for example, like Copper and Straw, like ourselves, like uh, Lucky Tortoise, Bar Italia on the other side of the water. you got uh, Rosa Madre. you got some very uh, Cleaver East, um, what McKillen has done and down to Workman's. You've seen much better operators moving into Temple Bar trying to improve the area. You've had very little concerted effort from the, let's say, the non-business stakeholders in the area to rally this cultural development. Not only restaurants, you know, you've got All City Records, you've got Rebirth Cool, and um, there's just, there's no plan in place for what is the centre of our city. You know, where do we go? We go, well, who are you going to blame? The guards? The guards are understaffed. You know, they've been, for the last 50 years, we have issues that really should be dealt with the medical community being dealt with more and more by the guards. They're underfunded. You know, you, well, you want to move the problem on, where are we moving it to, right? Are you going to push it onto Drum Condra? Are you going to push it onto O'Connell Street? Are you going to push it onto Henry Street? Are you going to push it onto Grafton Street? Are you going to push it onto Balls Bridge? Like, where, where is this? How are you going to resolve this issue, right? So we need, we need a plan that involves, you know, improving people's lives, protecting the most vulnerable. It starts at education, starts with housing. And, you know, this is a problem that has been ignored for long enough. And now people like myself and businesses like Copper and Straw, I now have to feel the repercussions of lack of action, lack of a concerted action with an end result and a good business plan in place. Sean, what impact is it having on your business financially? Oh, we're, we're, we're half, half, half what it was, you know. Under COVID, you see, everyone went everywhere, right? You, you couldn't jam 200 people into a bar, it was all seated, so everywhere was busy. Um, but we are literally half where we were. Um, no, we opened in COVID, so we kind of, like, we're well used to it. Um, but like I said, man, I've been dealing with this issue, you know, 20 years, you know. We've been having these antisocial issues. Sean, when you say you're only half of it, what, what do you mean in terms no, of turnover, capacity? Turnover, capacity, staffing, opening hours, it's all half. But is it an after effect of the pandemic or is it a factor of the antisocial behaviour, the drug dealing, you know, the people staying away from that neck of the woods, if you like? Well, you know, so partly it's because where you have this, you know, post-pandemic issue where people are working from home. So there's a cent- the centre is designed 
for a certain size and movement. It now doesn't have that certain size of movement or it's skewed heavily on Saturdays. You might notice yourself Saturday nights are far busier than Friday nights, mainly because you're already at most people are at home on Friday nights and they go out for the big day Saturday, while traditionally you'd be walking out of the office and you have, you know, a Friday feeling. But um, you know, the the drug dealing and the, the you know the antisocial behaviour is a symptom of an issue. Um and you know, you're just gonna be having this conversation about Aaron Key or, you know, Temple, you know, somewhere else in two years' time, if let's say got a big guard of presence in to clean up. What is like what is the plan here to protect the most vulnerable in our society? Well I seen like, you know, I you know, I grew up I moved uh, to Pierce Square off Pierce, I think it was ninety seven. My family's here many like nearly a hundred years on the square. We all remember the early nineties where you spend so much work to try and clean that up and now we're going backwards, you know? So what is the plan for the city as a whole? Where are we trying to get to? Stephen, let's maybe uh, chat about some solutions. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? I presume you'd like to see uh, more guards on the street, but who wouldn't? Um, but that's a resourcing issue, as uh, Sean ha- has mentioned. But what other solutions to this problem um, do you think might be available to us? Well, I, th- I think Sean makes a really good point about, um, you know, certainly from what I see, the the users are, are the most vulnerable people in our society or amongst the most vulnerable. They're marginalised. It's so upsetting and it's so tragic to see. But the dealers that I see on the corner of Aston Key outside my window doing a busier trade than my coffee shop are sober, they're alert, they're very sharp. And I think something does need to be done about that. You know, absolutely there needs to be more support for the individuals who are acutely and chronically addicted to drugs and are in this awful cycle of deprivation. But I do feel that, you know, where open drug dealing is taking place on the street, uninterrupted, a busy commerce (laughs) on the corner of Aston Quay, that something quite immediately and quite urgent needs to be done about that. You know, this isn't a, a random corner of a remote housing estate where a degree of luck or intelligence is needed to, to, to catch these individuals and to stop this type of activity. It's just happening all of the time. And certainly from the conversations that I've had with the guards, you know, they'll pop into us once or twice a day. Um, you know, that's on the days that they're not in court waiting around for an entire day in court for five minutes when they're pulled up in front of a judge to speak or give evidence. And you know what I am calling for is a far greater Garda presence. Um, Like this is such a complex issue. Uh, You know, I don't have the solution to it in terms of the wider societal issues that need to be addressed. But in terms of my business and in terms of what's needed to make the area feel safer uh, more pleasant and more attractive to uh, potential new businesses uh, to move into the area and to just rejuvenate it and give it a little bit more vibrancy. You know, we need to see more guards on the street. You know, certainly if there are areas or pockets or corners of the city where literally every 10 minutes there are multiple drug deals taking place, that can't be allowed to continue. Uh, you know, there's no secret. <laughs> there's no um, there's no real skillful detective work needed. Everybody knows that this is happening and still it's just being allowed to continue. And it's almost like a baseline level of drug dealing is known, accepted and understood. But the consequences and the impact of that for the city are just so profound and so extreme that I think it does need to be addressed. And really what this needs is additional 
dedicated resources uh, you know not not existing guards who already have um you know a very large catchment area that they need to police Stephen, what response have you received? You know, I'm being told that it's not going to happen, you know, very openly. Like, I've been very direct in terms of what I think is needed. And the responses that I get back are equally direct. You know, it is a resourcing issue. It's just not going to happen. You know, I, I don't understand the ins and outs of courts and how all of this kind of things work. But I know on one Monday a while ago, we made, I think it was seven or eight calls to Pierce Street Garda Station. It was just a particularly busy day outside the shop where there was lots going on you know very very menacing we had people with scarves pulled up over their faces hooded jackets you know wads of notes dealing out drugs people smoking crack all of this kind of stuff at one stage it spilled over into the shop a little bit we were just very concerned and you know out of all those calls that we made we didn't see one guard on a number of occasions the phone wasn't even answered and when I when I met with an individual from Pier Street and when we were chatting it through, you know, on that particular day, a number of guards had to be in court. So, you know, they were taken off the streets to go to court to wait around for five or six hours to give five minutes of evidence to a judge. So I don't know. Maybe that is needed. Maybe that isn't needed. I don't know. But I know on that particular day, my business had a number of quite serious issues that we needed to get addressed and that couldn't be addressed because the resources that are thin on the ground were even thinner on the ground. And Stephen, if if extra guard resources aren't going to come on stream, uh, where does that leave your business financially? Um, how are you trading? Are you trading profitably at the moment? Can you continue on in this uh, situation? Well, like we've just opened. It takes a period of time to, you know, to get a new shop off the ground, to build a steady, loyal customer base. Um, but certainly when I compare Aston Key with the other two shops, um, so that's uh, Bray and Aaron Key in the middle of a pandemic, you know, it's been a much slower start on Aston Key. And that does concern me. It absolutely does concern me because, um, you know, if my business and I'm going to do everything in my power for this not to happen. But if my business did fail in that particular location, well, what confidence does that give any other business to open up in the area? But if my business has the opportunity to survive and thrive, and if we take off, well, then that becomes a positive role model for other individuals who are looking to open businesses in the area. And suddenly, before you know it, some of the, and this is the experience that I had uh, in Bray, suddenly, before you know it, some of the other vacant units become occupied and it transforms the area. You know, it becomes a nice interesting, vibrant, diverse place for people to go. And that in itself acts as a natural deterrent to antisocial activity because the area is buzzing, it's hopping, it's vibrant, and it just isn't a great place to stand on a corner and deal drugs. So I think really the guards, politicians, policymakers, you know, everything needs to be done to try and reclaim the city centre, to try and give brave businesses who are risking everything the opportunity to take off because it just transforms the city. And like the people of Dublin who work hard, who like to come into the city, you know, they need to feel safe. They want to enjoy their city. They want to feel proud of their city. And, you know, there's been so many occasions when a tourist has got off the bus from the airport, walked into the coffee shop with a look of disbelief on their face. And my heart just drops because I just think, 
gosh, you know, like the first thing that they saw when they got off the bus was either somebody smoking crack or a drug deal. And it's just such a disappointing situation for an area of the city that just has such incredible potential. Sean Cachenzi, the final word on this to you. Um, Stephen is suggesting more boots, more guarded boots on on the street is a a short-term fix um, that's needed for the area. What's your view? Um, Yeah, like, look, I'd like to think that would resolve it. Um, Having grown up around the area, I don't think that would. Um, You're just going to move the problem down. With all due respect, like, this issue of, you know, drug dealing is not anything new, right? You just cross the Liffey to 100 metres either direction, there was always hotspots. Forever and ever more, right? You were on nightclub streets there in Temple Bar, depending on the hours. It's always been there, so it is always there. It's just now that it's, it's, now it's spread onto the south side and it's pushing up, you know? And now it's becoming our problem. You know what I mean? But this is like, this is a byproduct of having no proper plan for the city having no proper social housing, no, no, um, you know, issues with education, issues with literacy, you know, discrimination against people with, uh, from inner city Dublin, which we all know are there, right? So what kind of end result are we expecting to happen with the current policies and setups that we have, you know, and the current services that we have? Like, what do you think was going to happen? This is now the repercussion of lack of action or wrong action. So there's no point putting a patch on it. Great, more guards, great. Let's put them more funding. Grant, what are we doing about education? You know, we're going to do nightclub reforms right now, open till 6am. We have no drug reform attached to that, which I think is absolutely bananas. Do you know where I'd start off? Probably legalisation of marijuana. Take that out of the courts, do what Amsterdam did. Not because I think it's right or wrong, but there's precedence there. Everyone else is doing it. There must be a reason for it. So, you know, that frees up the guards, frees up the courts, creates huge tax revenue for the services that we need. But the main thing is that there are literally like heartbreaking stories every day on those streets from the people who are from the capital. And one point that was made there that's very good is Dublin is so in, is so dependent on foreign direct investment. People who come from abroad don't see Balls Bridge, don't see lovely Mount Merion, don't see, you know, the countryside, the Lorg and all these lovely places. They land in the Dublin airport, which is a mess. They get on a bus or taxi and they go into Temple Bar. That is what their view of Dublin is. And is that the image we're trying to project? Because then I don't see the whole point of everything we've done the last 20 years. It just all seems a bit irrelevant. This is a symptom of an issue and there will be a lot more symptoms to come unless we get this stuff under control. Sean Cachenzi and Stephen Kennedy, I wish you well in trading in the future. I hope things get better for you locally and maybe you will get those extra guarded resources in the near future. But... Uh, thank you for joining us on Inside Business. Thanks, Gerard. Thank you very much. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Deb McGrebman, Stephen Kennedy and Sean Crescenzi for joining me on the show. This episode was co-produced by Suzanne Brennan and Declan Collin. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, if you're a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.